trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello again, Patriots. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington once again taking over the Access to Excellence podcast. Today I'm speaking with Lance Leota, Medical Director of Mason's Clinical Proteomics Lab and co-founder of the Center of Applied Proteomics and Molecular Medicine and Virginia Espina, a research professor and scientific director of the CAPCLIA Certified Clinical Proteomics Laboratory. Both are former scientists at the National Institutes of Health, and they are both at the forefront of Mason's successful development of surveillance and antibodies testing that is being administered to our students, to our faculty, and to our staff. The tests being done on campus are evaluated by Mason scientists in its own CAPCLIA certified lab, not an outside laboratory. And this drastically reduces the amount of time it takes to determine positive or negative results. It is just another way Mason is leading the way in keeping the Patriot Nation safe. Currently, the U.S. has about 24.7 million cases of coronavirus. That's the total number up to this point. And we've had more than 410,000 deaths. In addition, the United Kingdom has found a new strain called B.1.1.7. And that strain has emerged with an unusually large number of mutations. This variant spreads more easily and quickly than other variants. And currently, there's no evidence that it causes more severe illness or increased risk of death. The variant was first detected in September 2020 and is now prevalent in London and Southeast England. In South Africa, another variant called 1.351 has emerged independently of the variant detected in the UK. This variant was detected in early October and shares some mutations with the UK variant. And lately in Brazil, a variant called P1 has emerged and was identified in four travelers from Brazil who were tested during routine screening at Hamida Airport outside Tokyo, Japan. This variant contains a set of additional mutations that may affect its ability to be recognized by the antibodies. Now, I will tell you that we're not really testing that well for those. They could all be here or, or they could not. As of this recording, Mason has 1.1% positivity rate, which is well below Virginia's overall rate of 18.6%. So I want to welcome both of you all to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So I mentioned earlier that we have our own CAPCLIA laboratory, an acronym salad. Talk a little bit about what the CAPCLIA laboratory is and why it's important. So the CAPCLIA lab is a accredited laboratory. CAP stands for College of American Pathologists, which is a professional organization that provides guidelines for good lab testing. CLIA are actually federal laws that govern lab testing. CLIA stands for Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. And as you said, it's a salad of letters. But the bottom line that everybody should understand is that it's a accreditation level that affords rigor and reproducibility in lab tests. And Mason is unique in institutions in Virginia in that we are a university without a medical school, but we have a CAPCLIA accredited lab that can provide lab testing. 
This means that the clinical lab meets and exceeds the most stringent government and industry standards for medical testing, the same as you would see in a hospital diagnostic lab or any of the big diagnostic labs. We want to ensure for our students and our Mason community that we can strive to meet the highest potential quality for any test that we offer for safety and for accuracy. And if anybody had any doubt about the rigor and reproducibility and the infrastructure here at Mason, we are not a pop-up testing lab. I know some people have heard about these labs in the literature that are in the media. They say, oh, we're, we just developed a COVID testing lab. We've been accredited for eight years. We've been cap compliant for the 15 years that we've been at Mason. And so all we had to do was pivot our type of testing that we were already doing to address the COVID pandemic. Both of us have been doing medical testing, medical research our entire careers, and I'm a board-certified physician, and this, uh, our CAPCLIA laboratory is inspected every year and certified. It's very interesting. I don't think people realize the magnitude and the size of Mason. I don't think people realize how much medical research goes on at Mason and the number of elite level scientists on the campus. So in addition to the CAPCLIA laboratory, can you talk about some of the work that's ongoing here on our campus? Firstly, I want it's important to note that we have top scientists internationally recognized, highly cited in all the major fields of science. They're very humble, but during the summertime, more than 100 mentors, professors, internationally famous scientists work with high school students and undergraduates to teach them research in the laboratory. It shows how dedicated they are. They might be humble and not bragging about their accomplishments, but they are dedicated to teaching and inspiring the, the next generation of, of scientists. Many scientists throughout Mason are working on COVID in, for all different types of topics. I would say if we count them, it's about 100 other scientists throughout all the colleges that are working on various aspects of COVID from the basic mechanisms of how it infects the cell to the sociologic and economic consequences. So we have collaborations within our own center with the Center for Health and Human Services. We're doing epidemiological studies. There is a wastewater study trying to detect COVID in the wastewater to determine where the outbreaks are occurring. And as Lance mentioned, there are numerous psychosocial research projects going on at Mason. Oh, this is an outstanding thing to talk about. But let's switch gears a little bit. I'll talk to you a little bit about what's happening on our campus and what are we doing to combat the disease, particularly in your lab? You know, Mason has recently started administering saliva tests by the Center for Applied Proteomics and Molecular Medicine to its students, faculty, and staff with a goal of doing 10,000 tests a week. That's our number, right? Yes. That's our yeah. number. <laughs> All right. Um, we have a number written on the door. <laughs> yes, right. Hey, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> How will that test enhance Mason's ability to keep the campus safe? So by testing frequently and testing large numbers, we can prevent the outbreaks. And using a saliva test, it makes it so easy for people to donate. It's painless. You literally spit in a tube. It's much cheaper. It's much quicker than a nasal test. I know in the past, 
everybody has been fearful of an uncomfortable swab being stuck up your nose, and this is not that test at all. This is a very simple saliva test. And most importantly, we can do it more frequently. And the more frequent testing allows us to identify the potential outbreaks and potential cases much sooner. As Dr. Espina said, we can test rapidly. If you send out a test to an outside lab, it might be a couple days before you get the results. Here we, can, here we can get the results within less than a day after Ginny receives the samples. I think she did like 500 just yesterday. And we send the results back so we can get the results back in time to make a decision about quarantining. And therefore, that's part of your whole plan, President Washington, your whole plan to reduce the total incidence and to have everybody experience the joy of being at Mason at the same time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, I got the pleasure of going through the laboratories and I, I was just amazed at what I saw, the capability, but also the future in terms of what you all are putting in place for future diagnostic testing relative to COVID-19 and relative to what will possibly come next, right? We know that this is not the end. So talk to us about what do you see as the future of COVID testing and what research are you doing to meet that vision? First, I want to emphasize that we're just part of a team. Our team is bioengineers, it's medical scientists, it's chemists, it's individuals who know medical diagnostics their whole career. It's a whole team that is working towards developing the best, fastest, most accurate testing for COVID. But also, we're working on uh, new strategies for therapies of COVID. But we see as the future a rapid test that can be done in 15 minutes that gives a yes or no answer. And then if that comes back yes, then the person who had that positive test can be put in under quarantine while the remainder of the specimen is sent to a lab to do high stringency, high accuracy testing to verify that positivity. So they might have to be in quarantine maybe for half a day or a day while they wait for the confirmation, but they can find out in 15 minutes. And so we were evaluating, studying strategies and chemistries and technologies to do that and roll that out. And we think that's going to be the future. And we know scientists all over the country are doing the same thing. We also have been developing new ways to test for the antibodies that a person makes against COVID once they're infected. And the results that we're getting are really exciting. Our patients in our trial are teaching us so much about how our immune system is so smart to fight COVID. And so we think that's going to lead to really exciting strategies for future antibody testing after people get the vaccine to see if the vaccine works. Our new antibody test fulfills all the FDA criteria, has 98% sensitivity, 100% specificity. The next phase is to start doing antibody testing for people after the the vaccine. But right right now, our goal is to just ramp up so that Ginny and her team can be testing 10,000 students per week with what we think is the best we can make it accurate test. The advantage of a CAP-CLIA mentality is that you strive to continually improve it and check it and double-check it all the time. We hope to expand into newer technology, some of the technology that President Washington, you brought our attention to, 
that allows us to do testing in a microfluidic chip, which in each little dot on the microfluidic chip, you do four tests, replica tests of the same patient. So we're ramping that up to expand into that capability as well, all under ca- all the stringent guidelines of CAP-CLIA. And very importantly, the infrastructure that you, President Washington and Mason, has supported and provided for COVID testing allows us to expand, not just for COVID testing, for example, we'll be able to determine if we have cases of the new variant viruses, which we can use sequencing of the virus, and not just for COVID, but for the next pandemic or the next infectious disease or a combination of diseases. Jenny, you took the next question right out of my mouth. I highlighted those variants in the beginning of my little monologue on purpose, because right now we're not really testing for them in the U.S. We're testing whether you have COVID or not, but taking that additional step to identify the variants. You know, my understanding is that this virus, there's, there are small mutations that happen every single time the virus is actually transmitted from person to person. That's correct. And we're not doing the studies to show if those mutations turn into new variants or if these new variants that I highlighted earlier are coming into the country. I know we're doing some testing of that nationally, but I know that that is not happening in mass. If we're able to do that here with all the specimen that we have, tell us what that can actually allow us to do. So from an epidemiological standpoint, that allows us to pinpoint the spread of the mutant. It allows us to track disease groups, and more importantly, it allows us to potentially develop new therapies, new drug targets, new vaccines for these new variants. We have a biobank of all the specimens, positive specimens that we've collected so far from the students, faculty, staff, community volunteers in our research studies and we will be able to track back from over time when did the potential mutant emerge and what is different about any mutations that are emerging just here in the Mason community. Oh, that's really, really cool stuff. Look, for those of you who are listening to this podcast, look, this is how academic research matters. This is how academic research can actually provide solutions that literally can impact the world. And it is happening right here at George Mason University. It is an exciting thing to see. And I'm really, really excited about what you all are doing. Well, anything else? I, I, it's I all based on your, your vision and your support, because without the support that you've given us, we would not have been able to ramp up and get the new instruments that we need to handle the large number of specimens. And you and as you saw, when you visited us, you could see all the new, very enthusiastic employees that we were able to bring in to assist Ginny. It's not just something that we're doing, it's what you're doing and what the whole Mason community is doing. Well, look, our, our investment in this is just a recognition of the overall value that you all can bring to solving this problem. You know, right now, our General Assembly is in session, and I do know that they are considering a Senate bill, Senate Bill 1445. And what that bill is looking at is how do you bring to the fight many more entities than just our Virginia Department of Health and some of the other entities that have been chosen to diagnose and to vaccinate 
individuals from the coronavirus. And so that legislation will open up opportunities to community centers and universities and community colleges to really be actively involved in promoting and moving this forward. And that's going to open up a whole new realm for us as we explore possibilities for tackling this virus. Talk to me a little bit about what that can mean for us and what it can mean for, for what you all are doing. I think we need to have more of a coordinated effort with all the other universities in Virginia to conduct clinical trials and all the new types of therapies that are being developed. COVID has been a stimulus for us to work together and develop common platforms, common clinical agreements. Then as we go forward, these same types of agreements can be used for new cancer treatments, for personalized medicine, for Lyme disease treatments and, and testing. So when we expand our the, the way we work together with other components of Virginia, this only helps the future work that we're gonna be doing and also expands the ability of our own top scientists to work productively with other scientists. So. When scientists collaborate across universities, it's even better because we cross-fertilize ideas, discoveries, and everyone benefits from that. And importantly, the students are inspired because as we have seen with the magnificent students of Mason, they are inspired by science and their humanities degrees to see that here we have a crisis that's faced our society, the COVID enemy. They see the way that the Mason scientists and Mason administrators respond to it, and they're inspired. They see, well, if I get a degree, I can make a difference for the world like these scientists are trying to do. Also, it gives meaning to their being at Mason because they see, here's why I'm getting my degree at Mason, and there's going to be many, many new jobs in the future that are going to emanate from what we learned from covid and now or can be applied to cancer research, cancer treatments, and other vaccines for other diseases and the next pandemic. Well, this is great because this actually segues into the next question. Both of you all had day jobs before this thing hit. You were doing something else. And I know, Virginia, you, for a long time, you had been involved in research relative to preventing breast cancer. Right. And so, A, I'm really humble that you all pivoted like you did pivot in order to tackle this particular need. But talk to me a little bit about how this will affect your breast cancer research. Are there any correlations? It was a sacrifice to shift and pivot. So talk to me a little bit about all of that. So I like the word that you use, sacrifice. It was, and I now have a day and a night job. So Ginny <laughs> works 24 hours a day with her team on doing this, <laughs> testing. So my day job is COVID testing, my evening job is COVID testing, and my night job is thinking about all the research. Fortunately, my collaborators have been very understanding and very lenient, and we've been making small bits of progress on our research in addition to doing COVID testing. The corollaries are really interesting because one of the drugs that we had discovered that is potentially useful for preventing early stage breast cancer, chloroquine, mm -hmm. which is a drug used to treat malaria. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. I, I, wait a minute. I, I, I hear a 45 reference here. Are you you're going to hit me with the hydroxychloroquine solution now? Is that, what you're, is that where we're going with this? 
Well, actually, chloroquine, depending on the particular stage of the virus and how it's being used, may be effective. And there's research going on at Mason to study chloroquine and COVID. Oh, outstanding. This is news to me. And I want to emphasize that one of the things that we get to do in our center, the original charge that Mason gave us when they recruited us and our whole team from NIH under the Special Scholars Program of Virginia, one of their charges was to invent new technology that can be used to discover mechanisms of disease, but also to develop new treatments and to test patients. So we invent technologies, and then we use them for all these different topics. So technologies that we've invented, we have now can just turn and pivot and apply them to COVID. And what we learn from COVID then gives us new insights into, into cancer, how the immune system is recognizing or failing to recognize the cancer cell, very similar to what happens in the initial phases of a COVID infection. So what we're learning about the immune suppression that cancer causes, we can apply that to study the antibodies that patients make against the COVID and vice versa. We're learning about the brilliance of our immune system to devise ways to fight the COVID. We can now take advantage of that for cancer research. And it's also applicable to other infectious diseases, other viruses. So everything we've learned about COVID is not just applied only to COVID. It gives us insights into other diseases that we're studying. In fact, I think scientists all over the world who've turned their attention away from their research that they're normally doing to enroll and enlist in the army against COVID like we did, they're all benefiting because in the end, with what we learn from COVID, then we can use that same uh, knowledge maybe to inform our own uh, research. And regarding breast cancer, we're expanding our breast cancer work, and we have a, another big, gigantic trial that we're doing uh, coming up. So we're trying our best to dedicate towards preventing, treating breast cancer. We're trying to keep all that up in the air and going very productively at Mason, while at the same time, we're meeting all our really stringent requirements for testing our students. Well, this is really, really cool. You mentioned that you both were previously at NIH, and there was a special program that led to you all actually coming to Mason. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what was the size of your team? How many people did you bring over? Just give the, the particulars. Yes, I have an MD and PhD from Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, and I was recruited to NIH, where I was chief of pathology, head of the residency program, and we set up the first CAPCLIA certified lab ever at NIH. I was deputy director of the intramural Bethesda campus of NIH, and Ginny joined our department because she had outstanding experience in hospital medicine that many of us lacked. She was also a brilliant scientist, so that combination is very hard to find. Then we linked up with Dr. Petricoin in the FDA, and we had the first Cancer Institute FDA joint team to apply molecular biology to cancer, but then also with the aim of, with the point of view of the FDA for new treatments and new diagnostics. And then Mason in 2005 recruited our whole team, brought us here with the charge that our job was to discover diagnostic and mechanistic disease, functional 
studies and bring those all the way to help the patient. And we cannot help a patient if we don't have CAPCLIA because once you discover something or make a new test, you can't just offer it. You have to have it validated under CAPCLIA before it will ever help a patient. So we needed to have a CAPCLIA as well as an infrastructure just to do discovery. And so Mason supported us in that. And we brought about six people with us from the NIH, from both the FDA and the Cancer Institute. And then we've grown to about 30 core staff in our current center with many, many students and many guest scientists. This is really interesting. You two have worked with each other for many years. 19. 19 years. <laughs> Outstanding. So what is your working relationship like? Do you finish each other's sentences? Do you, do, I mean, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, firstly, I want to emphasize that my management style is that I try to partner with really good people. And Ginny is uh, not only is she a brilliant scientist, as I said, but she can take a really complicated big project and break it down into you got to do this first and this first and finish this and do these things in parallel and complete it. And then she she has a clinical medical background. I do too, of course, as I'm board certified, but I don't have the vast experience she has in quality of medical testing and how to ensure it. And then lastly, she is a rock of integrity. We try our best to do everything with the highest ethical standards because we know a patient's safety and maybe even life depends on it. And so my job is just to stay out of her way, but listen to her when she tells me, uh-oh, we better worry about this, Lance. That's where I get some of the best advice. So get the best people, support them, maybe provide a vision, uh, general broad goals, but let them do what they know how to do best. And that's how we work together. I agree completely. Lance has the big vision, the big picture. Most of us, including myself, are much more detail-oriented. Sometimes I have to herd cats <laughs> because I work with researchers who are very creative, and sometimes it's difficult to corral the creativity into the rigor and reproducibility that we need in the cap lab. But that's where working together with different personalities and different skill sets is really beneficial because we need both sets of skills. We need the big vision, we need the creativity, but we also need the details and the ability to put it all together. And that's why we make a great team. And I would trust any test done on my wife or done on my children for Ginny to do it because we really can't get any more rigorous attempt to keep making your tests better and more accurate and caring about the patient who's getting tested. Well, this is really, really exciting stuff. Look, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you all talk, and you're bringing the testing and the methodology to life. You know, you're spitting in a tube, or you're getting plucked and prodded, and they're extracting blood, and you put your little sticker on a vial, and it just goes off somewhere, right? And it's really kind of artificial. You get back a result. But what you all have done today is put a face, put a process, a procedure, put people to those outcomes. I can say for myself, but for those who will actually listen to this podcast, they will feel much more safe after hearing you all talk about what you're doing and the care and the rigor that's actually going into this than they did previously. And so I'm, I'm really excited about that. Let me ask you one final question about opportunities. Not too long ago, I did this podcast with a fellow named Andrew Light. Andrew helped negotiate the Paris Agreement on Climate. And one of the things he said was that there's a lot to be afraid of when it comes to climate change, 
but the economic opportunities the fight against this has created in research, jobs for students, and graduates was enormous. That's what he thought relative to climate change. Do you see the same thing relative to the coronavirus? And what would you tell our students in terms of how they can actually be involved with, connected to, and benefit from the opportunities that will undoubtedly emanate from our battle with coronavirus? I think that our students are already telling us that they see what they're observing about coronavirus and its effect on the economy, on industries, on antibodies, on also their families. When we give lectures on COVID to our science students or our um, humanities students, we say, here's the up-to-date, myth-busting truth about COVID for you to tell your family members and your relatives. Now, when they do that, then they instill in themselves, they see, hey, wait, I'm a scientist too. I'm, I'm an innovator in, in new ideas, and I can, I can see the value of, of a Mason experience. But then on top of that, they learn about diagnostics industry. They learn, learn about therapeutics. And then they learn creativity and innovation because we're constantly having to come up with new approaches, new ideas, new technologies to fight the unknown known of COVID. That's what's happening, and that's what our students can benefit from. And then lastly, I think society as a whole maybe will get to trust scientists more, or will at least have much more scientific awareness of the terminology of science, and I think we'll be better prepared for the next pandemic. But I think the industries, the diagnostic industries, and the industries that are involved in medical treatments, and the way that FDA handles new therapies and new diagnostics is all going to benefit from going through this. It's just exactly like the moon landing where there's been so much spin-offs that are helping everybody and helping creating whole new industries. We're even using artificial intelligence to study the virus and that might have an impact in self-driving cars. So all this is going to cross-fertilize and be a positive thing for the future. That's why we should be hopeful, not discouraged. And what we see in terms of how an individual patient can fight the coronavirus after they're infected with their immune system, we have tremendous hope for what the vaccine can do and what the individual person's immune system can do to fight this COVID. And so we have a lot of hope. And from a Mason-centric community standpoint, we have provided jobs for many, many students just to fight COVID. We were providing training opportunities in our lab and within the university to capitalize on the new discoveries and the technologies that have been developed because of COVID. So to very succinctly answer the question about are there economic opportunities for students because of COVID or for the society in general, absolutely. Some of our students are already co-inventors on licensed patents, inventions that are gonna be potentially commercialized or are being commercialized for COVID. Outstanding. Outstanding. Man, what a resume. <laughs> That'd be really cool to see. Well, look, this has been a pleasure. You always like to talk to people who are on the forefront of solving a grand challenge problem, and pandemics are a grand challenge. To have them come from your own institution is not just a joy, but it's almost, I got a proud father moment right now. <laughs> this is a really cool thing to see and to hear. And so I want to thank 
Lance Leota, medical director of Mason's Clinical Proteomics Lab, and Virginia Espina, scientific director of our Clinical Proteomics Lab and research professor for their time and expertise. I am George Mason University President Greg Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.